0: will be in James 1, which John Rice just read for us so well. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, James chapter one, it's on page 1011 in your pew Bible. I don't know what page it's on on your iPhone, but you can use that too. But it will be helpful for me to know that you have the Bible open in front of you. You don't wanna follow a church that follows the opinions of men, especially not today. You want to be at a church that follows the Word of God. That's why i like us to have our Bibles open so you just can see this for yourself. So let's pray and ask God's help as we turn to James. Lord, thank you uh, for the gift of your Word. Thank you that you're not silent. You had no obligation to speak to us, Lord, but you have. And here we have your Word in front of us. So we ask humbly and meekly that you would take away all distractions in our minds and hearts now. And let us be quick to listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On May 6th, in Westminster Abbey, Charles III was crowned the King of England. It was a decidedly religious ceremony. Charles was anointed with holy oil that came from Jerusalem. He was blessed, and then he was consecrated by the archbishop. He was even given the title, the Defender of the Faith. What was meant by this faith he was supposed to defend? Well, that was made clear throughout the ceremony. At one point, Charles was asked, will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? will you to the utmost of your power maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Since the 16th century, the monarch of England has been titled the Defender of the Faith, and by the faith was meant the Christian faith. But Charles created a buzz some years ago. I don't know if you followed this story, when he said he would prefer not to be referred to as the defender of the faith. Rather, he said he'd like to be called the defender of faith, faiths in general. We can understand his dilemma. He's trying to thread a needle between his country's enduring ties to Christianity while also accommodating an increasingly religiously diverse people that live across his land, this is a challenge that many public leaders are trying to navigate. However, many people today, in situations not like Charles, are still making the same move. They're shifting. They're shifting from a notion of the faith, any idea that there is one true religion, to the more accommodating, socially acceptable idea of many faiths. I mean, there's many paths up the mountain, right? Why would you ever assume yours is the only one? So the logic goes. So it's okay to be religious as long as by religious you mean your personal, private, spiritual preferences. It's not okay to be religious if by religion you mean you believe in the faith, meaning a view of God and morality that is applicable to all people across all time. Well, James, the brother of Jesus, would not fit well into this blurring of distinctions and this loss of clarity. If nothing else, James writes as the defender of the faith. His whole letter is about genuine, authentic faith. And for James, there are forms of faith. Forms of religion, we just heard this in verse 26, that in James' words, are worthless. And according to James, there is a form of religion, a single form of religion, that is, verse 27, pure and undefiled before God. There is in fact a true word, verse 18, that is able to save your souls, not many words. So today, as we consider James... I'm going to take us through specifically verses 19 through 27 in James 1. I want us to see how James unfolds one point about the faith or the true faith. And the point is simply this. True faith lives the true word. It It hears the word, it receives the word, it is transformed by the word, it lives the word. And James is going to set this forth in a sequence of three steps. First, he's going to tell us that true faith listens to the word. That's verses 19 through 21. And then he's going to tell us in verses 22 through 25 that true faith doesn't only listen to the word. And then finally, in verses 26 and 27, he's going to tell us that true faith applies the word, but it does so holistically. So it listens, it doesn't only listen, and it applies, but it doesn't apply only in part. Let me show you how this works. So first, James begins with the simple point we're supposed to listen. You know, sometimes I multitask. I don't know if you do that. I'll be on a call um, over the phone or on the computer, And I'll start doing something else. I'll bring up an article online to read. Or maybe I will start rearranging my desk, putting things in order. I mean, I think I can probably do this while this person talks. And inevitably, when I do that, I only catch about half of what a person is saying. There's other times, though, when I listen very differently. Like when I was very, very sick a few years ago and I got some tests done by my doctor and my doctor called with the results. You can imagine, I turned away from everything else. I listened attentively. I actually got out a piece of paper and a pen to take notes. I listened very, very carefully. This is James' first point. True faith listens carefully to the Word. Notice verse 19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, be quick to listen. James says. Now, the context James has in mind is a church gathering where scriptures would be read. You see, people in James' time frame, they didn't have personal Bibles like we do. They didn't have stacks of books at home. Many couldn't even read. So the one time they would hear Scripture was when they gathered in church. Think of Jesus in Luke 4. He went up to the synagogue and he asked for the scroll from Isaiah and he read it. That's when people would hear. This is probably the context James has in mind. Now, what exactly were they reading? What was the content? Well, this must have been Scripture. We know this because in verse 21, you see where James says, Receive with meekness the implanted word. He has in mind The gospel or the scriptures which have been planted in the hearts of these Christians when they became believers. He's saying, be quick to listen and receive with meekness the word of God. Now, James adds some color to this command. First mentioning things that are opposed to good listening. So he says, be quick to listen in verse 19. But then you see it there, look down. He says, be slow to speak, slow to anger. What does he mean by this, slow to speak? You know, many of us are more concerned with what we have to say than with what we might hear. Even when we listen to someone, and I'm guilty of this, we're really preparing our response. And we end up talking over them. We burst out and we essentially bulldoze them with our words. And James aptly here connects being slow to speak with being slow to anger. He connects our speech with our anger. Because often, see if this is true for you, when we listen, we begin to get agitated, defensive, even angry. I mean, this can happen if someone's talking to you and they bring up a topic that happens to be sensitive. And as soon as that topic comes up, you're ready to go. Or you may know this person's affiliation with a certain group or what part of the country they're from. And you may think as soon as they start to talk, I am going to demolish this person. And I'm building my argument as they speak. And you start to get angry. Or maybe what they're saying is is challenging you. And so right away your defenses grow up. Whatever it may be, James says, be slow to speak, slow to anger. He says in verse 20 that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What does he mean? Not all anger is bad. The Bible allows us to be angry at sin. But most of our personal anger probably is bad, at least in part. What James means is our anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God, meaning our anger doesn't produce the perfect justice of God, the perfect judgment balanced with God's perfect mercy. Our anger doesn't lead to the gospel. It leads to wrath. James says, be slow to anger. What James has in mind, it seems to be the person who turns up at church all the time, turns up at Bible study, turns up at small group, but they're always there to share their opinion. They're quick to answer. They're quick to correct others. They don't ever really seem to change over the years. They have their view of things and they're there to make sure that you know you're probably wrong. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger. But James then gives us a positive coloring for what it means to listen well. In verse 21, he brings up meekness. You see it there. He says, receive the word with meekness. What this means is humility. It means true faith has a humble posture when it's hearing, especially when it's hearing God's word. True faith has a posture in the heart not of leaning into its own rightness or righteousness. True faith starts with saying, you know, there's probably a good chance I don't know everything about this topic. You know, there's a good chance I'm ignorant. And there's even a chance that I'm acting out of my own wounds or my own anger, and the person speaking to me might have something to tell me. That's meekness. So this is the first question James is putting to us this morning. Does our faith in God show itself to be authentic by an eagerness to listen, especially listen to God's Word? Does it show itself by our humble posture when we read the Bible, even when God's Word says something hard or controversial, or even when His Word may critique us? How are we when a Christian brother or sister speaks to us from God's Word, perhaps calling out inconsistencies in how we live? Are we quick to make excuses? Are we quick to relieve the tension by spouting off words? You know, I wonder if we would do better at receiving critique, whether at home or at work or with fellow church members. I wonder if we would do better at receiving critique if instead of trying to explain and defend ourselves, we would say, first and foremost, I am going to listen as hard as I possibly can. James knows that this first point, be quick to listen, comes right from the book of Proverbs. It's old, well-tried wisdom. He who holds his tongue is wise, Proverbs 10, 19. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, Proverbs 15, verse 1. So James' main point here is that we, it's, is that we need to spend time being silent especially when it comes to god's word so what place are we giving to the word of god in our lives how are you listening let me remind you of two well-known ways christians have listened over the ages first corporate listening Um, Since the early church, right there in Acts chapter 4, the Christians would gather together to hear Scripture. It says in Acts 4 that they came together to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Are you in a group that reads the Bible together? Are you in a group that reads Scripture together? And second is a practice of individual listening. Personally, I try to read some Scripture every morning. I use a Bible reading plan. You know, there's dozens of these out there online. One's not really better than the other. Find what works for you. Some people read the Bible in a month. Some read it across 10 years, whatever your pace is. And when we listen to Scripture privately, we need to be silent more. We need to give God time to speak. Often we turn to listen to God amid a busy morning. and We say, "Okay, Lord, please speak. You've got 60 seconds. Or you have until my metro gets to its stop. Five minutes. I know we're busy, but true faith makes space to listen. The old adage is true. God gave us two ears and one mouth. We should listen twice as much as we speak. So James now turns to a second command. So first in verses 19 through 21 He says we need to listen to the true word. But second, in verses 22 through 25, he says we must not only listen. Verse 22, do you see it? But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don't only hear. Don't only listen. Respond. We understand James' point. It's pretty straightforward. Merely listening to God's word, but not reacting to it. That's not the attitude of faith. You wouldn't do that to your spouse. You wouldn't do that to your boss. Hear instruction from them. Say you hear it and sit there and do absolutely nothing in response. The point seems to be clear. But I think what's interesting is that James brings up the idea of self-deception. Do you see it at the end of the verse? Deceiving yourselves apparently we can actually listen to God's word in such a way that we're being deceived. What does that mean? Some of you love to study and learn. I mean, we're in Northern Virginia, right, in DC. There's a lot of learners here. You study the Bible and you know a whole lot about it. And there's something satisfying in and of itself about coming to understand an ancient Bible, an ancient book. Perhaps you've even gone and gotten a degree at a Bible school or university in theology. But don't be deceived, James says. Receiving God's Word means doing it, not just knowing it, not just understanding or studying it. And some of you love good speakers, good podcasters. Maybe you have a favorite preacher or two that you listen to once a week. There's something satisfying in and of itself in good oratory, a good turn of phrase, a good illustration, a deep, grovelly voice. But don't be deceived, James says. The purpose of a sermon is not entertainment, but life transformation. Where God's word is concerned, knowing entails doing. Now, notice the illustration or the image James gives us to explain this more. It's the image of a mirror. It picks up in verse 23. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. Mirrors in the ancient world were not like our mirrors today. They were polished metal and not everybody had one. See, people in the ancient world didn't walk around with a constant idea of what they looked like. They didn't have photographs. They didn't have mirrors hanging on all their walls. So James is imagining someone with the rare opportunity to see their reflection. Maybe they hadn't looked at themselves in years. But they go away and immediately forget what they saw. Now, here seems to be the point James is getting at. You typically look in a mirror to see what's amiss. Hair out of place. Mustard on your cheek. Right? Your tie's off center. So the goal of looking is acting. You walk away and you fix the image If the person looks in a mirror, sees they have mustard on their chin, and walks away and does nothing, James is saying this person is a fool. Seeing in a mirror is supposed to lead to taking action, usually remedial action. So it seems that the person here is looking into the Bible to see something and walking away and not making any change. The great Danish thinker and writer, Søren Kierkegaard, he regarded the first chapter of James as his favorite portion of the bible. And in his book For Self-Examination, he considers what it might mean to think of the bible as a mirror. What does it mean to read scripture as a mirror he asks? The first requirement Kierkegaard writes is that you must not look at the mirror, observe the mirror, but must see yourself in the mirror. You know, some people look at the Bible the way you might look at an antique mirror. You're not really looking for yourself or your reflection, you're studying this neat antique. They read the Bible like an ancient artifact. It's something cool to look at, but they're never actually seeing their reflection. The second requirement, Kierkegaard goes on, is that in order to see yourself in the mirror when you read God's word, you must remember to say to yourself incessantly, It is I to whom it is speaking. It is I about whom it is speaking. Friends, the Bible isn't given to flatter us. It's a gift from God to be honest with us. The Bible isn't given so that we first, in reading it, can see what's wrong with everyone else and point it out. The Bible is given to show us what's wrong with ourselves. It must directly speak to us. You know, a a vivid example of this comes from the life of David. It's that tragic episode when David took Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed. And the prophet Nathan comes to David and he says, David, I want to tell you a story. He says, it's a story of two men, one great, powerful, rich man and one poor man. The poor man, he had one little lamb and he loved that lamb and he'd hold it in its lap and he'd feed it out of his hand. The rich man, he had tons of sheep. And the rich man had a guest come to town and he needed to feed the guest. So he took the poor man's lamb and he slaughtered it and he fed it to his guest. David is outraged. He's outraged over a principle, a general principle, the strong ought not to rob and abuse the weak. And then Nathan drives the knife in. He says to him, you are the man. And David's devastated. That's what it means to go from seeing the Bible to realize that the Bible is seeing you. It's not just pointing to stains that happen. It's pointing to a stain on your face, a stain on your soul. And then as Kierkegaard goes on, of course, following James, it's not an end in and of itself to just be addressed, where the Bible points out your stain, you fix it. Just like the person who sees that their hair's off in the mirror walks away and fixes it. This is what James seems to be getting at in verse 25. He says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the Bible, the word, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, He will be blessed in his doing. James has in mind the person who looks deeply into the word of God and begins to reshape their life according to that word. Here, James refers to the word, do you see it as the perfect law, the law of liberty? This is how he's understanding the scriptures, the Old Testament law, the 10 things like the 10 commandments as read in light of the grace of Jesus. It's the perfect law. Psalm 119 says the law of the Lord is perfect, but now it's also the law of liberty, of freedom, as it's received through Jesus. But James says, notice this in verse 25 at the end, the doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. Two things just to notice here about being a doer of the word and the fact that many people only listen. First is just that, and this I think is for all people, especially Christians though, James is putting in front of us an incentive for obedience, not just hearing, but doing. And it's a counterintuitive one. James is saying that our freedom increases the more we submit to a law. I mean, is that not a contradiction? A law of freedom. Chains that liberate you. James is saying the more that a human being obeys this law, does it, doesn't just hear it, but does it, the freer they are. I mean, the logic is very simple. It works just like natural laws do. It works like natural laws do for, say, a flower. A flower would be a fool to resist sunlight and water. It is made, it is hardwired to obey certain laws of photosynthesis so that it can flourish. That's how the Bible is. It's a law by which human beings have been hardwired to flourish. So that's the first thing is a little bit of an incentive Look, doing the Word, it may seem at first like it's really hard, but he says in the long run, just as his brother Jesus said, you're going to be the woman that's building her house on a rock. Just you wait and see. You will be blessed in obedience. But there's also a word here. There's another word here. And this I want to say, especially to you if you're not a Christian, and I want to be sure that you understand this. Our passage teaches that there are fake christians people who call themselves christians but who aren't people who are attached to a church who say they're religious who carry a bible but bear no evidence whatsoever of the character of jesus this is not to say that christians are sinless or perfect But it is to say, and this seems to be the point of James, that you know a tree by its fruit. True faith does not remain fruitless. There is at least a little apple trying to grow. At least a couple grapes. At least a little bit of humility developing. At least a little bit of hatred of sin growing. At least a little bit of kindness. At least the angry man is getting a little bit more patient. Little by little, James is saying, you see fruit. But he's also inferring there are fake Christians. So I don't want you, if you're a non-Christian, to be deceived. Every time you see a so-called Christian doing something embarrassing on the news, you just need to be discerning. They may be a fake Christian. There are a lot of those. So those are the first two things. We listen, but we don't only listen. We engage deeply and we do. Now, what does this doing more specifically look like? That seems to be what James is after in verses 26 and 27, where he brings up a few practical things or applications of what doing the Word would look like. So this is our third point. True faith applies the Word holistically, and you'll see what that means in a moment. So verse 26 If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Strong language. Remember, this is Jesus' brother speaking. True faith, in verse 26, leads to our words reflecting the word. Our speech cannot consistently contradict God's speech. If you have a word-centric faith and God is speaking to you by his word and then you're constantly careless with your words, James is saying you need to really do some self-searching. And there's a lot more James has to say about our tongue and our speech, bridling our tongue, and we'll get to that in weeks to come. I want to focus, however, now on verse 27 because it brings together two forms of living or doing the word that are too often separated. It brings together outward action with inward holiness. See if you can pick this up. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Orphans and widows were the most vulnerable people in James' day. True faith, he's saying, will develop a burden for those in danger. And as you read God's word, especially in the Old Testament, you see the Lord is uniquely burdened for the widow and the orphan, for the most vulnerable, for the sojourner. James says you will begin to have that same type of heart. But he goes on. There isn't even a break in the original here. He just goes to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and there's no end there in the original. He just goes to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's just both, do both of them, both of them. To keep oneself unstained from the world, what does that mean? That means at the same time where James is saying you should see the world, see those in needs and get into the world and help them, in the very same sentence he can say, and by the way, the world's full of pollutants that can defile you. You need to seek holiness. Again, straight out of the Old Testament scriptures that they would have been reading. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Now often today there are groups that focus on one of these or the other. Some groups focus entirely on social action, get out in the world, love, show the world that Christians are awesome and nice people. And while they do so, they just hit the dimmer switch on the Bible's call to holiness and purity. But there are others who are so concerned about the world, they kind of retreat and they focus on being right and correct and pure and true. And to the degree they do so, sometimes they can actually forget about the world. They stop seeing the needs of the world. They won't go into the world. James says true faith applies the word of God holistically, outwardly and inwardly. You know, Charles Spurgeon, I've been reading about Spurgeon lately. And he discourages me because he's just so gifted. Charles Spurgeon was one of the most brilliant and biblically sound preachers of the last 200 years. And he writes this, I mean, biblically sound, orthodox. And he writes this. If there were nowhere else a heart that had sympathy for the needy, there should be one found in every Christian breast to me. A follower of Jesus means a friend of men. Now, none of this is to say that our works of personal piety or our works of social action save us. These are not the root of the Christian tree, but the fruit. If you were to think of a Christian as a tree, the root, right, the start of the Christian is grace, The trunk is faith and repentance and trusting in Jesus. It's all receiving. But the tree has branches. And as it's nourished, it produces fruit. The fruit doesn't create the tree in this case, but it's a fruit of it. That's what James seems to be saying. Not that you have to do good works to get God to show you grace. Then it wouldn't be grace. You would merit it. Rather, he's saying this is a fruit that comes from a Christian. So we should be people who pray that God will, through his word, develop our awareness and our compassion for the most vulnerable around us. And we should be a people who are praying regularly that God would keep us aware of what's polluting us and give us a passion, a restlessness for holiness. True faith lives the true word. It listens it receives and it does. Let me close with, with an image that I think will be an encouragement to you. I think sometimes when you walk away from a teaching like this, You you can go back to the Bible and you can get discouraged. You can begin to see more and more clearly the Bible's standards for living and you can see where you fall short. And then you hear all these admonitions to help the needy. And you're thinking, well, I drive by some homeless people. I typically don't stop. I don't know what to do. It's complicated. And I don't really have a lot of time in my life to go help a bunch of orphans and widows. I don't know. You can feel overwhelmed. And so it's crucial to make this last point that we know who it is that is seeing us when we are looking into the word and we'll use a little Greek parable for this Um, before Jesus was walking the earth uh, Plato was writing dialogues and one of these was a dialogue between Socrates and Alcibiades Alcibiades I don't know how you say it but Socrates Asked Alcibiades, Is there anything we can look at and see both the object and ourselves at the same time? Alcibiades answers, Yes, obviously, Socrates, when we look at a mirror. Notice the similarities of James. But Socrates points out another object that when peered into can actually give us our reflection. Now think of the context. These are people who don't have a lot of mirrors. They would have paid close attention to anything they could see the reflection in. Socrates says this, You have noticed that the features of the person looking into the eye appear in the pupil of the person opposite, as though in a mirror. And we actually call the pupil a doll because it is an image, a tiny doll-like image of the person who's looking into it. Socrates is saying the eye beholding an eye, if it looked deeply and carefully enough, would see itself in that eye. This is a beautiful image of seeing yourself in the eye of someone else. You see, the true believer, when they look deeply into God's word, putting their faith in Christ, they're seeing their reflection, but it turns out that it's not merely a mirror. It's actually their reflection in the eye of the one looking back at them, in the eye of their Savior, Jesus. And you begin to see your reflection in his tear-stained eye. You begin to see your reflection in the compassion of his eye, welled up for you, big with mercy for you. And you hear him saying, not a hard law, not that you need to obey in order for me to love you, but saying exactly what he did to his disciples If you love me, Sam, keep my commandments. And you realize you are responding all along, not to an abstract dead mirror, but to the very eyes of your Savior. So let us, friends, be not only hearers, but doers of the word, for it is our Lord's very word, his very life that we are doing Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your brother, James, was converted. We know you had something to do with that, Lord. You cared for your brother. And we thank you for James' courage to be a leader in the church. And we submit afresh to his letter, believing he wrote it while being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So let us as a church, Lord, not be mere hearers, but also doers of the word. Amen.